This evening, I want to return to the book of Esther. We'll pick up in Esther chapter 1, verse 10. And I want to read all the way through the first four verses of chapter 2. And so it is a rather lengthy passage. And um, some of you are here this evening probably because you read ahead and you saw some of the names that are coming up and you wanted to hear me try to pronounce them. I would like to remind you that there is a difference between listening critically and listening to be critical. That's a joke, but um, even though there's a great deal of truth behind it. With that said, uh, I don't have much of an introduction for you because in Esther chapter 1, we're still setting the stage for how God is going to save his people from the atrocity of our villain, Haman. One thing I might mention that I think I did kind of run past rather quickly this morning, the book of Esther's interesting in the way that it's written compared to other biblical texts. It really is a short story. We might even call it a novella. Compared to other Old Testament or, or New Testament books, even that fall in the category of narratives, the book of Esther reads like a short story. And one of the things I mentioned that makes it difficult to preach through the book of Esther in my typical preaching style is, well, you really got to read the whole thing to get a sense of it. You know, if, if any of you that have read books to your grandchildren or to your, to your children, you realize that when you read a short story, you read it for the whole thing because you want the whole plot. You know, you want to see all the characters and everything all at once. And that's what makes Esther difficult to preach through. In being a narrative, really, to get the whole sense of it, we've, we've got to read through the whole book. And so first, let me commend to you as we're going through this study, read through the book of Esther multiple times. Hopefully, you'll read through it before we meet again to study it on Sunday, and that will help you with your familiarity of it. Um, because we want to make sure that we have in view the whole picture of what God is doing through these people. And that might suffice to be our introduction, that simple encouragement just to spend time reading the book as we're studying it. But we'll begin then by turning to the Word, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahaman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zathar, and Kerkos, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has performed has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memokan said in the presence of the king and the officials, 
not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and, did, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memokan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had, what he had been decreed what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who please the king be, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Yeah. A very godly example of um, leadership and, and everything else. I mentioned this morning the book of Esther contains no mention of God. The big question that we ask ourselves, that we must ask ourselves when we're faced with the narrative of Esther is, where is God? But also, where is God in, in my life today? I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's always easier to see God at work in our lives in retrospect. You know, it's always easier to look back and to see how God was working in our lives whenever we have the clarity of perspective that comes with perhaps like King Ahasuerus, our anger abating or going away from us, simmering down, and even being able to look back at how the small details played a major contribution. When we're in the middle of our lives, we often ask ourselves the question, where is God? Where is He now? Where is He working? And we find, I believe, our encouragement in beginning to look at this narrative. The first thing I want to point out to you all is the emphasis that is placed on laws and edicts in the Persian Empire. 127 provinces, a very big region ranging from, all of, from India all the way to Ethiopia. We said this morning that was the known world. A very large region. And in this large region, what held society together? Laws and edicts, rules and regulation. Rules are good. Um, I like rules. 
personally, as long as I understand why they exist. You know, if I don't have any connection, I, I tend to be a little bit of a rebel, but more often than not, I like rules, I like policies, I like sticking to things, I like having parameters to live my life in and, and uh, pray for my daughter Charlotte because it seems that she is following in my footsteps. You know, it's very funny when, it's gotten annoying, it was funny at first, but when we kiss her goodnight, I must kiss her forehead on her right side. And Michelle must kiss her forehead on her left side. And we must do it both precisely at exactly the same time. Yeah, on occasion she asks for these kisses to be, you know, simultaneous. simultaneous. Yeah. And if I kiss her on the left side, she will tell me to do it again. I don't know if it's power play or just that my daughter has inherited uh, <clears throat> my affinity for rules and regulations. But rules have a way of holding things together, and certainly that was the case in the Persian Empire with a province as large as the Persian Empire. Rules were important. There's a couple of things that I want to point out about those rules. First of all, the the king's friends, when they are asked for advice and they tell him to send out an edict, they tell him to make sure to put it down in writing so that it cannot be repealed. The king's edict in the Persian Empire could not be repealed, even by the king himself. He could not make a contract. If he decided something, that's the way it was. He could not go back on it. And so there was no way to fix laws or to amend them or to any of these kinds of distinctions. Rules played an important part. But secondly, looking at what we find here with King Ahasuerus, well, let's understand the situation that he found himself in. Verse 10 begins, On the seventh day, on the seventh day of what? Remember from, yeah, from, remember from this morning, the king had thrown a second feast for all of the people that existed in the citadel. And so this was the last day of this feast where everyone had golden cups, and they were allowed to drink, if you go back to verse 8, to drink wine according to their own compulsion. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff in his palace to do as each man desired. In other words, um, rather than people drinking along with the king, which would have been the custom, um, actually, I think it still is in England, if you, if you have dinner with the queen of England. She's dead. I'm sorry, the queen's dead. One of the things Queen Elizabeth was notorious for was she was a really fast eater. The problem with that was the, the custom is when the queen's done eating, so are you. And so if you had dinner with the queen, when she stood up to leave, you also stood up to leave. And that's the, that would have been the custom in the Persian Empire as well. But the king's edict to say that there is no compulsion to drink meant, well, drink as much as you want. You don't have to drink along with the king. Or drink as little as you want um, as to maintain your senses. Well, it, it would seem that King Ahasuerus ventured on the drink as much as you want kind of program. See, on verse 10 it says, On the seventh day when the, king's heart, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Another way, when he was taken over by the wine that he had been drinking for these 180 days that weren't long enough, so 187 days, he'd really been given over at this point. And his judgment seems to be somewhat impaired as he tells his eunuchs to go and set out to get Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people 
peoples and princes her beauty. I don't know how you read that, but I might be wrong here, and I'm okay with being wrong, but the way that I read that, the king wanted his wife to come before his friends so that they could see how pretty his wife was. Some Jewish historians comment on this to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, and they say that the implication is that she was to be brought with only her royal crown. The king, taken over by wine, was asking his wife to come before him and his friends so that his friends could oogle at her beauty because she was nice to look at. Or lovely to look at, verse 11 says. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Some people read this, the book of Esther, and certainly in 2021, this is something that needs to be addressed. And it, they're feminist. Um, I live in 2021 still, honey. No, okay, it's 2023. Some people read this in 2023, you know, the, the wanting to be feminist or the cause of feminist movement kind of reads the book of Esther as if that was the, the major thrust because it begins with Queen Vashti refusing the king's command. I want to point out that's really not what the book of Esther about, is about. And we've really got to set back what we would like it to be about about to be able to read it the way that it is. The queen was refusing the king because what he was asking was improper. He was asking, he was setting aside any sense of propriety so that he could have people... It's ridiculous. It's, I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom being so taken over by wine that the king wants to parade his wife in front of his friends. Breaking propriety in every way. And first, there's one thing that I would like to address. It says that they were taken over by wine. In the Old Testament, God's blessing is exemplified by three things. We commonly see this repeated. God's blessing on his people is seen in the provisions of grain, of wine, and of oil. Wine's not the enemy here. Being taken over by it, as the king was, is certainly a problem, and we see that example here. See, Psalm 104 tells us that wine has the capacity to gladden the heart of man. At the same time, Proverbs 20 verse 1 warns us of excess wine, that it leads man and women to go astray. Paul, writing to Timothy, tells him to consume wine in order to care for a sick stomach. At the same time, writing to the church of Ephesians, the church of Ephesians, he warns them not to become given over to debauchery. Now, I'm not going to take a position on whether wine is the issue here or not, but the problem is very clear that King Ahasuerus is given over to the wine and such that his sense is no longer with him. And this is the warning. This is what we should take heed of, that his sense is given over. He's not really a man who's leading in any way. Rather, he is filled with wine. He's making bad decisions. And those bad decisions continue as we continue to look at this narrative. At Queen Vashti's refusal, look at verse 12. It says that the king became enraged. 
and his anger burned within him. So he was a very merry drunk, and then he became a very angry drunk. Very fast. Very fast. And we find, and this is repeated throughout the book of Esther, if you wanted to read the whole thing, as I've encouraged you to do already, what you will find is that in a moment of foolish passion, you can alter your life forever. Here's a warning. In a moment of foolish passion, you can change your life forever. This is what the king would do as he seeks out his wise men and he says, what should be done since my wife has refused a command of the king? And these people say, of course, you know, not only has she sinned against you, or, but, but ultimately they say, you should send out an edict that she's no longer able to come before you. And it pleased him. And it pleased him. He sent out an edict that Queen Vashti was never to come before the king. In a moment of foolishness, spurred on by his drunkenness, being given over to the influence of his friends, bad advice, bad counsel, but no judgment in man who is filled with wine, he makes a foolish decision that changes the course of his entire life, and she is no longer Queen Vashti, and she is no longer permitted to be in his presence. And, the, well, the king enjoyed her presence. Right. Yeah, it's irreversible. Irreversible. Between chapter 1 of the book of Esther and chapter 2, I believe there's a three-year gap. Now, you don't find that in the text. But I do believe that there's a three-year gap between this moment when he sends out this edict and he's lonely, and then in chapter 2... Um, we're going to pick up, and King Hazarus, has, anger has abated him, and he remembered Queen Vashti. Well, what happened between these two things? We're talking about history a second ago, the men, as we were meeting in my office, and the significance of history, and just how unfathomable it is to be able to understand all of history. I didn't know this until I was studying. But did you know that the greatest military conquest in all of world history took place in the 5th century? Most scholars and historians agree the largest military conquest took place in the 5th century when the Persian Empire tried to lay siege of Greece. And they were not successful. The Greeks overpowered them. Or, well, in Greece they overpowered them. I didn't know that. Did you know that? No. Yeah, I had no idea. So here's this king, no longer having his wife back home. And, and it's actually kind of humorous if you think about it. This king, who's a really big deal, and so far the text has emphasized only how much of a big deal he is, how lavish the palace is, how great the party that he's able to throw, how he's really, he's lord over 127 provinces, and he's got all these friends and people that look up to him, everything else, and his own wife can't come to him. He sends out an edict in all of the land, hoping that this edict is going to help in some way. It's going to make it so that the wives of other men will do what he couldn't even accomplish from his own throne. King Ahasuerus was maybe not so much of a big deal. Not as big of a deal as he thought that he was. He's not that much of a big king. 
He's not in charge of everything. He can't call his wife to him. And he's influenced by his friends. After this war, this battle, this three-year gap that I believe exists between the first and second chapters, he remembers his wife. The king's young men, those who had attended him, chapter 2, verse 2, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch. Here's the procedure. Appoint officers in all 127 provinces that you are in charge of. Of those 127 officers, have them find beautiful young women in the region and have them brought to you in the citadel. Give them all the makeup they want. Make sure not to withhold their cosmetics from them, right? That's in verse 3. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And then let the young woman, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. Now here's the turning point. Here's the moment. There's a new queen and she's going to turn out not to be any particular queen, but she's going to turn out to be a Hebrew woman. This is where Esther enters our narrative. Searching for a new queen. Again, King Ahasuerus is influenced by the advice of his friends. I want to pause there for a second. And I just want to ask... And this is something dangerous to do with narrative, right? Because we should never read narrative and say, be like King Ahasuerus or don't be like King Ahasuerus or be like Esther. We should never do these kinds of things when we're teaching or reading narrative in the Bible. In fact, I call them the killer bees because people will try to be like Moses and be like Aaron and all these different things. And Well, that'll kill you. But just for a second, how do we avoid what I believe is the hubris of King Ahasuerus? How do we avoid being so influenced that we would make foolish decisions that alter the entire course of our lives? One point or one point of counsel that I might give you is know what you stand for. King Ahasuerus seems to vacillate back and forth between what he actually wants and what he desires. He's influenced by his friends because he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what matters. He doesn't know, he doesn't have priorities. He's never sat down and considered these things. If we're not going to be, and again, dank killer bees, so watch out. If we're not going to be so influenced, we must know what we stand for. We must know what matters to us, and we must make sure that those principles come from the Bible. Perhaps even... The greater key is that we would consider the principles that we find in the Bible with the same degree of emphasis that the Bible gives them. We were talking a moment ago about, um, just, just a moment ago, we were in my office and we were talking about a particular response to using the Lord's name in vain. There's a lot of things that I'm able to tolerate, especially with my friends that resemble, you know, less a godly character, or they're still being matured, or, or whatever it is. I'm able to tolerate a great deal. Perhaps you are too. You're able to tolerate a lot between colleagues and friends and people that you spend time with. Do you tolerate people using the Lord's name in vain around you? 
I think more often than not, what we find is that people um, will tolerate that, and then other vices or other kind of sinful habits will we'll, we'll, we'll be harder on those. We'll be more condemning towards those things because, well, they stir us up more. This is really putting things backwards. Above all of the things that I look in the Bible that God is hard on, if we want to use that word, that he is condemning towards, that he is strict on, it is the use of his name. When we find God described as a jealous God, it is in response to the use of his name among his people. When we find God... Very simple question. Let me not chase down rabbits. Let me just say, do we approach things with the same degree that we'd find in the Bible? Or do we allow our preferences to set the degree that we look at things? I believe following God means that we allow our heart to be conformed not just to believing what he says is wrong is wrong, but that we approach them in our life with the same degree of reverence that he shows us in his word. Certainly, the New Testament gives us examples of Christian liberty. That is, liberties that Christians... By the way, today's Catfish Day. There are some Christians that believe that we should maintain all of the laws found in all of the Bible, including those in Leviticus that tell us that we are not supposed to eat fish that do not have scales. Catfish do not have scales. They have skin. According to the Levitical law, it is unclean to eat catfish. The fact that you eat catfish is an expression of Christian liberty that you are entitled to, according to the New Testament. That Christian liberty extends not just to eating catfish, but it extends to other areas of our lives. How we pray, how we read the Bible. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you how much of the Bible you should read when you sit down for that discipline. I personally think that three chapters is kind of what I consider a full meal in reading the Bible. I'd say you read less than three chapters and you're probably overlooking something. Some people read entire books, and they would say, well, unless you read the... In the case of the book of Esther, I would say, if you don't read the whole book, you're missing the whole thing, right? And that's 10 chapters, or 12, or, you know, whatever. My point's this. You have liberty as a Christian in how you approach God on some things, but there are some things that we find in the Bible where it's absolute, like how we use God's name, or how we allow it to be used in our homes, or how we... Even when we have guests, do we allow those guests to speak however they want, or does it turn our stomach to think about God's name being used in vain in a house that he has provided for your provision? We talk about this in biblical stewardship. It's not just about how we handle our finances, but it's how we regard our property. And so as a steward of God's property, I don't believe that I'm a homeowner. I don't believe I'm a homeowner. I believe God's a homeowner and he's entrusted me to take care of what he's given me to take care of that house. Personally, I don't like yard work. I know some of you do. You'll get saved eventually, that's fine. But I don't like it. I really don't like it. I mow my grass. I have a riding lawnmower. I feel very fortunate in that. The riding lawnmower doesn't take care of the weed eating. And I haven't found any device that allows me to drive by the fence and make sure that the grass doesn't stand up. And there's times when I get done mowing the grass and I sit back and I'm taking a break and I'm drinking some water and 
I say, maybe I could skip just weed eating this one time. And then I remember, I'm not in control of my own property. This is God's property. I want to get out there and I want to weed eat. Maybe I just need to turn to the book of Proverbs and say, get ye to the ant, ye sluggard, and just encourage me to quit being lazy. That's not the point. It's not a matter of being lazy or not. It's being a steward of what God has given me. And in that sense, we'd have to take very seriously the things that the Bible does not give us Christian liberty on. You do not have liberty to use God's name however you want. That's just an example, an illustration. There's other things that we don't have liberty on. We don't have liberty to say that when the church meets for worship that preaching won't be at the forefront. The church does not have liberty in that direction. You just don't. Preaching the Word of God is what the church is. Well, we have liberty on what songs we might sing. We don't have liberty on preaching. Neither does a pastor or a preacher have liberty on what he would preach from, whether it's his opinion or whether it's a book of the Bible. He needs to preach from the book of the Bible. He doesn't have liberty to do anything else. All of this to illustrate, do we know what we stand for? If given a list of the priorities in our life, could you delineate your preferences from those things that are prescriptive in the Bible? Could you separate your preference from what the Bible says you will do? King Ahasuerus had no internal fortitude to know what he stood for. As a consequence, now not to mention the fact that he was a drunkard, and that definitely con contributed considerably to his lack of judgment, but... He takes advice from his friends and he, as I mentioned, vacillates between what he's going to do by the advice that he receives. Paul might describe this as being carried along by the philosophies of the world. If you don't know what you stand for, then you're waiting on somebody to tell you what you stand for. And you're going to vacillate just like King Ahasuerus. You might be at risk of making a mistake. You might even fall victim of making a momentary, foolish decision that has consequences for the rest of your life. Not such a big king, after all. In closing, let's add a final thought and ask, where is God? I mentioned in an introduction that in the moment, as we walk through things and as we look at things, it's sometimes difficult to see where God is at. Certainly, even in this narrative, it's difficult to ask, where is God? As you see a womanizing king send for her, make an edict that she would no longer be queen, try to control 127 providences, who, who knows how other many households he decided that he was going to make this edict apply to. Where is God? Where is God when we have a drunken leader who's led astray by the advice and counsel of people that he's uh, supposed to trust? Because of these decisions, look at verse 5 of chapter 2. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. 
who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconi, king of Judah, with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, I don't want to preach this, but we're introduced to a new character, Mordecai. One of those captives from the Babylonian captivity that had been brought to the citadel in the presence of the king. Through exile, and perhaps this is our greatest fear, that we would be disciplined by God, and now we would experience His discipline by exile. Could you imagine? Perhaps some world force came and decided they wanted to overthrow the United States. Now I know that will never happen, right? Could you imagine all of us being taken up as slaves? relocated to another part of the world, maybe even given positions of prominence because the Babylonians, I mean, they weren't stupid. They realized, realized that some of the people, some of the Jews had talent. That's why we find Daniel and his friends, they were actually given a position of prominence, right? They were wise men who advised the king. Could you imagine being relocated against your will? Would you not say, where are you, God? Esther gives us a glimpse. God put him there for a reason. As the Persian Empire grew and as their bloodlust grew for conquest, as the kings desired to have control of more and more territories, as sinful man does as sinful man does, God positioned Mordecai to be an advisor to who would become a beautiful figure Lovely to look at, Esther. Esther was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, and she would ultimately become queen of Persia. Her influence would be the catalyst that prevented the atrocities that Haman planned against the Jews. It's much easier to look at this in retrospect and to say, I sure am glad that the Babylonians came and laid siege to Jerusalem and relocated all of us. But in the moment, that's very difficult to do. I consider your own lives and the things that you're going through, and I consider how many people are sick within our church. Really a lot. For the size of our church, really a lot of people are sick. I consider how many people are recovering from illnesses and regaining their strength and in need of encouragement. I think about, where is God? What's He doing? As we look at the book of Esther, one point of encouragement that we have is this. I may not see it right now, but ten years from now, looking back, I believe I might see a redeemed purpose in all of it. A redeemed purpose. Now listen, I'm not saying it's... I want to look back and say I'm sure glad that my sister was sick and that my, my sister was unable to regain her strength and that my brother wasn't able to leave his house and that his wife was a prisoner in her own home taking care of him and that the nursing home was too small for my other... You know, I'm not going to look back and say, man, I'm sure I'm glad all of that happened. But ten years from now, I might say that it was redeemed for a greater purpose. What could that purpose possibly be? God only knows, but... Could I give you one possibility? God's working in the lives of the church. 
Maybe he's drawing us through a refinement. Maybe it's not exciting because we don't see numeric growth. By the world's standards, maybe we don't see success. But you know what I think we do see? I see we people praying like they've never prayed before because they have something to pray about. Maybe we'll get through this and we'll learn the power of prayer. How many times have you heard a sermon on the power of prayer? Maybe we'll actually believe it. I'll tell you again, I've mentioned this many times before. Every time there's been a revival in the history of the church, it has always began with one or two people covenanting together to be in faithful prayer on a daily basis. Every time there has been an explosion of people being saved, coming to know God, is because one or two people have committed to praying. Who knows? We're going through a refinement. Maybe it's because the church doesn't need more growth. Maybe the church needs healthy growth, and that requires fertile soil and not a bunch of a conglomerate of different ideas and a hodgepodge of charismaticism and different things within the church. Maybe what the church needs is a refinement so that our doctrine would be pure and it would reflect the Bible. Maybe what the church needs is that our preferences would be set aside so much to the degree that, unlike King Hazarus, we know what we stand for because we looked to the Bible ourselves. I tell you, just from my experience in studying church history, church health, churches do not grow unless that foundation is there. Unfortunately, the preponderance of church planters, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to speak against the church planting movement, but just being real for a second, the preponderance of church planters attract as many people as they can to make a church financially viable to organize without a whole lot of care for doctrinal purity. And what you wind up with is a church that cannot grow past 65 regular attenders. Because what will happen is it gets up to 65, and then you find out there's doctrinal impurity, and then it decreases all of a sudden very fast. And we go through church seasons, we call it seasons. And then it goes up to 65, and then it falls back down again. That's not what God wanted for his church. That creates a bad reputation in a community. It creates a bad testimony in the community and the life of the church. God wants his church to be able to hold the members that come to it. That's why we're a covenant people. That's why we don't believe in church hopping. We believe we're committed to the church as part of our Baptist foundations. It demands fertile soil that has doctrinal purity, and perhaps even before we can get there, we have to know what we stand for. Those are two possibilities. I don't know what God's doing. I said as I began, only God does, but I have confidence in Him because reading the book of Esther reminds me that even though I might not be able to see God in the day-to-day moments of my life, in looking back, I can see Him in every minuscule issue. We look around for God's providence and we ask what He's doing and we look, for the, we look for the big pictures and we ask, God, what are you doing right now? Loved ones, God's providence is such that a spider crawling up a wall is according to His will. He's in the small details. As such, I can, I can hardly recount all of the ways that God's providence has led me here. But looking back, it only affirms my confidence that Michelle and I say this often. Um, 
as we were moving to Greenville. I've never lived anywhere other than Northwest Arkansas. And Michelle's a military brat, so she was born in Okinawa and lived in Wichita and has never really had anywhere to call home other than Northwest Arkansas. As we were making the decision to move here, we said, this is our community. This is our home. That's important to us. Even the moment, I wondered if we weren't crazy. Looking back at God's hand and everything, I have confidence to say, this is where I belong. This is where God's put me. This is what He wants for me. This is, this is the church that God has blessed. This is the church that God has called. This is the church that God has given His commandments to. This is the church that has been told to go. Hey, I can't tell you what God's doing in the moment, but give me 10 years and I'll show you. Do you believe that? Can you go through an exile period and say, well, God's doing something really big here. 